If you would turn to page 1002 in your pew Bible, our New Testament reading is from Hebrews chapter 4. I'm actually going to back up a couple of verses and read into chapter 3 for a moment. Hear the word of the Lord. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For who are those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not also those who left Egypt and led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? What is it, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear he would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us, just as it came to them. But the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundations of the earth, from the world. For he who has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage he says, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, And those who formerly received the good news failed to enter it because of disobedience. Again, he points a certain day, today, saying through David, so long afterwards, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that um, you are a gracious God. You provide for your people. And um, we recognize this morning that the gifts, the tithes, and the offerings that we bring before you, uh, they are gifts to us first from your hand. And so we simply return them to you. And our prayer is that you would use these gifts, these tithes, and these offerings for the further revealing of your kingdom in this place and throughout the world. Pray that you would use them in order that the good news of the gospel would be proclaimed to all the nations. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Oh, yeah, children are dismissed to Children's Church. Looks like some of you already got the idea. Um, So if that involves you, uh, ages uh, three to first grade, make your way to the back of the sanctuary, and someone will take you to your children's church class. Um, During the month of August, we're doing a a brief sermon series, and uh, this very brief sermon series that we're doing is aimed at really talking about what Grace Community Church is about. Um, Why are we here? 
Why do we do the things that we do? What are the things that define and shape us? Um, who do we want to be? What do we want to be? Um, and what are our priorities? And last Sunday, as we kicked this off, we, we talked about how we need, all of us need a gospel-centered ministry. And for the next three weeks, I want us to talk about um, basically three important fruits or expressions of a gospel centered ministry. And first up, I want us to talk this morning about transforming worship. And we're going to be using one of the classic biblical texts on worship, which is Psalm 95. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 95. Um, And if you'd like to use one of the Bibles in the pew, the page number is 499. So we're going to read Psalm 95. It's not that long. We're going to read verses 1 through 11, the whole psalm. So let's give our attention now to God's holy and inerrant word. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountain are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work, for forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall never enter my rest. Amen. A few years ago, a great movie came out uh, about the famous... Depression-era racehorse named Seabiscuit, which was called, wait for it, Seabiscuit, if you want to look it up. And uh, there's a great line from that movie that that I want to share for you, but i got to set it up a little bit. Um, Near the beginning of the movie, Mr. Howard, he's the wealthy investor, and he goes with his wife and a trainer to get get their first look at this horse that they're thinking about buying, Seabiscuit. And uh, the plan that they had in mind was they were going to this racetrack and they would put their jockey, Red Pollard, on this horse and he was going to take it for a test run around the track to show them what kind of horse this really was. And uh, Mr. Howard and his wife and the trainer, they're leaning on the, the fence rail there and they're watching the horses run around and here comes Seabiscuit. And if you've seen this, you remember it was an absolute absolute disaster, right? The horse was just winding all over the track, not running in a straight line. It it didn't look like a racehorse at all. And so sarcastically, uh, Mr. Howard's wife says, he seems pretty fast. Uh, And uh, to which the trainer replied, yeah, but in every direction. Um, But the joke being over, and here's the line uh, that I, I want you to think about with me this morning. The trainer looked deeper and reflected on that horse, and this is what he said. He 
said he's so beat up. It's hard to tell what he's like. I just can't help feeling they've got him so screwed up running in a circle, he's forgotten what he was born to do. He just needs to learn how to be a horse again. And so, if you've seen the movie, um, they bought the horse, right? And one of the first things they did was they went out to the wide open country, and they just turned him loose, just riding all over the place. And a little bit of a spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, the horse was fast, right? Very fast. They wouldn't have made a movie about it if it wasn't. Um, Life in a broken world is really, really hard. And we often feel beat up, don't we? And we feel screwed up much of the time. We feel exhausted like we've just been running in circles. For those of you who were shocked by the offertory anthem, um, that was my call. Um, that's a uh, I just bring in a little culture here. I'm from South Louisiana. That was by Tab Benoit, um, Cajun blues man. Um, but what a great song. Dark waters rise and thunder pounds. The wheels of war are going around and all the walls are crumbling. That's how life feels a lot of the time. And we're left asking, where can we find the power to change in this hard, broken life, the freedom to change? How can we live in freedom? How can we find peace and joy in the midst of everything around us crumbling and falling down like that? Let me tell you, it, it's good that you would pray about those things. Um, it, it's good in your life to practice discipline, but ultimately… The Bible says that the key to facing life's difficulties with confidence and the key to finding the freedom to change and so on, it ultimately comes to you through worship, transforming worship. And here's why. When God made you and me, He made all of us worshipers. G.K. Chesterton, an author I love, wisely once said, when man ceases to worship God, he doesn't worship nothing, but worships everything instead. You cannot help but worship. You were born to worship. And it's when we, in this life, give our worship to anything other than God that it always leads to distortion and breakdown in our lives. And it sends us running around in circles, exhausted. It beats us up, it enslaves us, and it fills our lives with fear and anxiety. What will ultimately free you, what will ultimately heal you, is remembering what you were born to do. Learning how to be human again is all about learning how to be engaged in worshiping the one who made you and loves you. So here, here we go. We're gonna, I have four simple points from this, this psalm, Psalm 95, and I'm just going to give them to you as we go. But the question that I want us to be talking about this morning is this. What kind of worship will really transform us? First, worship that transforms engages your whole being. 
your entire being. The kind of worship that will lead to transformation in your life has to engage every aspect of your being, and Psalm 95 shows us that. Verse 1 calls us to sing, to make a joyful noise. Verse 2, we're to come with songs of praise and thanksgiving. Worship, the psalmist is saying, it, it has to engage your emotions. This is scary territory for Presbyterians, I know. Um, but this is emotional language in Psalm 95. Yeah, ever since Adam burst into song in the Garden of Eden when he first saw Eve in Genesis chapter 2, and he said, Alas, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Ever since then, singing has been one of our chief means at expressing our feelings, our emotions, and expressing emotions has never been a sign of weakness, but always a sign of what it means to be deeply and truly human made in God's image. But the psalmist also says in this psalm that transforming worship also engages us volitionally. So not just emotionally, but volitionally. Down in verse 6, we're told to worship and we're told to bow down. We're told to kneel before the Lord, our Maker. Volitionally, the act of the will, right? The bowing down and the kneeling, that's the language of submission. Real transforming worship isn't less than the expression of our emotions, but it is a lot more. Transforming worship involves you taking your hands off of your life. Right? It's falling before God, ready and willing to obey Him, whatever He says. It's saying, your will, not my will be done. And finally and briefly, I'm going to expand on this in the next point, but transforming worship also engages us intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, and now intellectually. Verses 1 and 6 are calls to worship. They start with these words, oh, come. But what fills the space, right, in between those verses is deep thought, deep reflection on who God is and what God has done. It's using the intellect, it's using the mind to process through and apply the revealed truths of Scripture to your life. Were we to gather together just to sing? And by the way, I think we have some of the best music in Memphis here at Grace Community Church. But were we to gather together just to sing, it would not be worship. Were we to gather together just to affirm what we believe, our doctrine and our theology and all that, it would be good, but it wouldn't be worship. Were we to gather together just to make vows and commitments of obedience, it would not be worship. True worship that will transform you has to engage every aspect of your being. And I'm going to try to illustrate this, and then we'll apply it just a bit more. In the mid-1800s, there was this famous tightrope rope walker named, uh, well, i got to look for it, Charles Blondin. And he was kind of, it's 1800s, but he was the daredevil of his time, okay? And in 1860, he came to the U.S.-Canadian border, and he made this big deal about how he was going to be the first person to tightrope walk across the Niagara Falls. And the crowds came out in droves to see this. And so he walked across this tightrope over the Niagara Falls. The crowd went crazy, right? And then he started to up the ante. Because the next thing he did was he went across blindfolded. 
And then he rode a bicycle across it. And then, this is the story anyway, he carried a stove out with him into the middle. I'm not making this up. (laughs) I mean, it's a portable stove, I'm sure. And he made himself an omelet in the middle of that wire. Um, And then he Then he pushed a wheelbarrow across that was full of this sack of heavy potatoes, okay? And the crowd was just going wild with excitement and cheering, right? And so as the story goes, he shouted to the crowd, Do you believe I can carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? Oh, yes, you can do it, you can do anything, all that stuff, right? And so Blondin responded, Who wants to get in the wheelbarrow? And a hush fell over the crowd, (laughs) and no one did it, right? What's the difference between a life that's just limping along? What's the difference between a life that's lived on the sidelines and a life of real, dramatic transformation, Look, think, think through that scene at Niagara Falls. Was there emotional excitement there? Absolutely. Was there belief? They said they believed. But what was missing was real personal submission. All three of those have to come together. You know, we could say a lot more about this point, but let me put it to you like this before we, we move on. It is very important for you to understand truth. And it's good to give assent to right doctrine and right theology. But if you can do that without a sense of delight and joy and a sense of being caught up in praising God's beauty, then it's not worship. It's something else, and it's not worship that will transform you. And it's good to sing, and it's good to shout aloud, and it's good to make a joyful noise. It's good to have that experience of great emotion, right? But if you do that without bowing and kneeling and submitting your life to the king, it's not worship. It's something else, but it's not worship that will transform you. I don't know if I've ever offered any kind of public praise for what we do at Grace Community Church, because I feel kind of icky when preachers start bragging about their church. But let me just say this. Probably another reason is there's a lot of things that we don't do well, (laughs) you know, and I don't want to highlight that either. But if you look at your bulletin each week, there are hours and hours and hours of thought that go into putting that little piece of paper together for you. Words of reflection and invocation and confession designed to get you to think when you're here, right? Songs chosen that are emotionally responding to the themes that we're addressing each week, calls to obedience and submission in the sermon, in coming to the Lord's table and giving our offerings and our tithes. I try not to have very many many pet peeves, but one of my biggest pet peeves is when I hear people say, Jesus just wants your heart. Because the Bible says He doesn't just want your heart. He wants all of you, every aspect of your being brought under His reign and delighting in Him in truth, because that's the kind of worship that will change us and transform us. Okay, we need to move on. Second, worship that transforms is fueled by truth. Each time the psalmist calls us to worship with the words, O come, 
The call is followed by a three-letter English word, for, in verse 3 and in verse 7. What is the psalmist doing here? He's using the revealed truth of Scripture to reflect on who God is and what God has done. And that's, and that's how he is fanning the flames of worship in his life. It's like throwing gasoline on a fire. When my wife and I, Jennifer and I, were a newly married couple, couple we were doing campus ministry uh, with an organization called Reformed University Fellowship, and we started out at the University of Tennessee at Martin, and we had this little house out in the country, and which isn't saying a whole lot because everywhere in Martin is country, but we, uh, we, we both grew up as city kids, and so we had a lot of fun being out in the country. We rented this little house that was on an acre of property, but it was surrounded by thousands and thousands of acres of farmland. And uh, one night we had a bunch of people over to our house because we were going to do a bonfire in our backyard, and I was really excited about it. And so I stacked up the wood, teepee style. I wasn't a Boy Scout, but I did the best I could. And I decided to use gasoline as my lighter fluid. I know it's stupid now, um, but I didn't know it then. And I doused down that wood with gasoline, and then um, I, I made a little trail of gasoline like 30 yards away so I wouldn't be right there lighting the match, which was really wise. Um, but <laughs> I lit that trail, and the fire snaked its way through my grass to this teepee of wood. And when it hit, that wood, and I'm not making this up. You can ask any of the people that were there. There was a small mushroom cloud in my backyard. It just exploded outward and upward. In a flash of light, fire went everywhere. Jennifer was in the kitchen watching all this, and in her version of the story, I don't like to run generally, but she says she never has seen me run as fast as I did that (laughs) night. Um, Ran to get the hose, I mean, 10 seconds later, and I would have been on CNN because I would have, I would have started the biggest forest fire that Mart- that county had ever seen. Um, it, it was amazing. But um, worship that transforms, worship that explodes upward and outward, it is fueled by truth. It's going over and over the excellencies of who God is by thinking over and over about all the things He has done. It's pouring over the Bible's claims of of how God Himself is the ultimate beauty we seek and need in this life. It's dousing ourselves in the good news of how God Himself is the one Lord and Savior we can trust to set us free in this life. It's doing that until it dawns on you and explodes outward and upward in your life that creates this kind of worship, transforming worship. Let me pull out one little reflection for me to apply to us briefly before we move on. In verse 3, the psalmist says that the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. There are other gods that we bow down to. If you cease to worship the one true king, you never stop worshiping. You are made to worship, and so you worship everything else. And when you do, it distorts your life. See, worship is when you assign ultimate value to something. 
That's the beauty that if I submit to it, will set me free. If I, and some, for some of you, you have assigned ultimate value to your success and career. If I could just get there, if I could just arrive at that place, if I could have that, then I would be happy and I could rest. And you become enslaved and distorted, enslaved to workaholism, right? Sacrificing your health, your family in pursuit of that God. It never sets you free. It's got you running in circles, all screwed up and beat up. Or maybe you run to sex or you run to romantic love. If I could just get that, then I would be happy and whole and satisfied. If I could just get that, then I would know I'm beautiful. Then I would know I'm lovable if I could get that. And it sends you down a road of radical radical compromise in your life. It enslaves you maybe to someone else or someone's opinion of you, or it enslaves you to an image on a laptop screen, and you are running in circles, all screwed up, and your life has become distorted. Or maybe you've assigned ultimate value to to money or to security or to comfort or the, the approval of others or to being moral and religious. It could be anything and everything, as G.K. Chesterton said. And to experience healing in your life, you have to learn how to pull yourself off of the things that distort you to the one thing that will set you free if you submit to Him. And to do that, you've got to soak in truth, the revealed truth of Scripture. There are many gods, but there's only one God that if you submit to Him and bow your knee to Him, He will set you free and give you life. And you will find Him to be the rock of your salvation, as the psalmist says in verse 1. Only, there is only one God who is large enough, beautiful enough to captivate and transform you in your whole being. You are made on that scale. Nothing less can do. Okay, third, and I'll, I'll be brief here because I'm going to expand on this one next week, but worship that transforms is corporate. It's so obvious that many of us didn't even notice it when we first read this psalm. The whole psalm is in plural. Let us sing. Let us make a joyful noise. Let us come. Let us kneel. Our Maker, we are the people of His pasture. I do want us to mention this today because I think, here's what I think. I think the thrust of the Bible is that the only worship that will really transform you is corporate, is done in community with other people. I don't want you to misunderstand me here. I think it is good for us to worship individually and important for us to do that. To individually practice engaging your whole being in God's worship. To individually spend regular time in God's Word fanning the flames of worship with the revealed truth about who God is and what He's done. But here's what I think the Bible would say. Your individual worship is vitally important. And the main reason it's so important to you is because it is preparing you and getting you ready for corporate worship, which is the only worship that will ultimately transform you and change you. Now, why is that? Why is that? I mean, we live in a world where lots of people will say, 
I don't need to come to church to worship. I, I can worship just fine in the privacy of my own home. I can worship out in nature, whatever. Or, or somebody says, yeah, I know I'm not a member of any one church, but I can worship just fine and just hop around from church to church. And the Bible is saying to all of that, no, you can't. You can't. That, that will not transform you. So why is that? Okay, this has to be one of the most well-used, um, well-worn uh, quotes by C.S. Lewis, but I think it does help us imagine why we need to worship with others who know us and are known by us. C.S. Lewis had this really close, small group of friends that used to get together regularly, and in this little group, his friend Charles passed away. And initially, Lewis thought that he would now have more of his friend Ronald now that Charles wasn't there anymore. But what he realized was that when Charles died, he didn't get more of Ronald, but he got a lot less of Ronald. Uh, This is how he put it. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Caroline joke. Far from having, uh, far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. He's saying to really know Ronald, he needed Charles. There were aspects of Ronald's character that only Charles could elicit and bring out. And so here's the question. It's very simple. If that's true of finite beings, how much more true must that be of an infinite, eternal God? The other day I was thinking about the story of the Tower of Babel in the Bible and that's the story where everyone is speaking the lang- same language, and they come together, and they're going to build the city and this tower. Why was that such a rebellious act in Scripture? Well, for one thing, God had told His people at this stage, this is in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, He told His people to disperse and to spread out and to become all the nations of the earth. But in rebellion and longing for security they huddled together to settle this one little place and build this city. And yes, it was a punishment that God came, came down and confused their language. They're all speaking different languages. But it was also His grace because He was forcing them to spread out and become all the nations of the earth. Now, why did God from the beginning want, why did He want racial ethnic, cultural, and linguistic diversity. Because there is no one race, there is no one nation, there is no one culture, there's no one language group that can bring out all of His beauty. You cannot know God, and you cannot experience transforming worship apart from diverse community. And listen, the more diverse, the better. Right? Diversity in personality, in gifts, in classes, in ages, in gender, and yes, races. The more diverse, the better because the diversity helps reveal God's character in ways that we would be blind to it just on our own. And I've got to move on, and we'll talk about this more next week, but let me very simply encourage you that you need a diverse 
You need a diverse body of believers to really experience transforming worship. And that means you need to figure out how to be all in somewhere. Not just hopping around, but all in. Knowing and being known by others. So you need to invite others to worship. You need to invite people into your home. You need to sacrifice your time and your money to go out and spend time knowing others and being known by others. It will change what happens when you come to worship. I promise you. Let's come now to the last point. Worship that transforms, here's what we've said, it engages your whole being, it's fueled by truth, and it's corporate. But now, last, the worship that transforms rests in the good news of the gospel. Here's where we want to think about those last verses, verses 8 through 11, those verses that feel very weird in this psalm, right? From making joyful noise to the Lord, shouting to the rock of our salvation, to this very serious warning about not listening to God and not entering His rest. The psalmist is calling our attention to a very specific moment in the life of Israel when they were wandering in the wilderness at Meribah and Massah. Okay? It's in Exodus chapter 17. I'm not going to read it, so I'll just recap it for you. You read it on your own. God's people, they were grumbling and they were quarreling with God because He didn't provide water for them to drink on their timetable. Basically, what the people are doing in that passage, if you read through it, they were bringing a formal charge against God. They were saying, God, you have failed us in the wilderness because you did not provide for us when we felt like you needed to provide for us. And you read through that passage, and they are using judicial courtroom language. They were indicting God. So what did God do? He let it happen, basically. He told Moses to go get his staff and go to this rock. And God said, I'll come down on that rock and meet you at that rock, and I'll put myself on trial in front of you. And some of you remember this story. God comes down on that rock, and he told Moses, take your staff and strike the rock, and water will come out of it. You know what God was doing when he came down on that rock? He was identifying himself with that rock. He was saying, I'm the rock. Strike me. See, he was saying, I'm going to put myself in the place of the guilty, and I will be struck for them and in their place. The Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 about the nation of Israel, they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ, is what Paul says. We read from Hebrews earlier in our service, confusing passage, but but you did hear this at the very end of it. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever enters God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. He's saying Joshua got them to the promised land, but their physical rest in that physical land was pointing to a much deeper rest for us. How does the author of Hebrews say that you find this deeper rest? He says you have to rest from your works. You have to stop. You have to quit. You have to stop trying to please God with who you are and what you do. 
You have to stop. We come to Jesus with nothing in our hands in order that we can realize that He was the rock in the wilderness, struck for us. He died for us in our place so that we could know that God is pleased with us because of Him. And if that truth, if it dawns and breaks upon your heart, you might realize why the psalmist began the psalm the way he did. Make a joyful noise, or as other translations put it, shout aloud to, to who? To the rock of our salvation. And the rock, Paul says, was Christ. There's so many things that we face in this life that really do threaten to beat us down. So many things that we've given ourselves over to that have us screwed up, running in circles, and all of that. We've forgotten what we were born to do, but worship, this psalm is telling us, can heal all the distortions of our lives and give us power to change and set us free and allow us to face difficulty in life with tremendous peace and joy. Let me give you one more illustration as I close. I heard this story from a pastor probably 20 years ago and have not been able to forget it, probably never will. A young woman started attending this pastor's church, uh, and she eventually was converted. She became a Christian, and then she met and she married this very godly man, and not too long after, they decided they wanted to have a family of their own, and they wanted to have children, and so they tried, but they had so much trouble getting pregnant. Years and years went by of unsuccessful pregnancies, and then finally, she got pregnant. And they were so excited. I mean, you can imagine, I mean, all the stuff that they were now getting to do, painting the baby room, putting the crib together, having the baby showers, all that kind of stuff that's exciting. The day finally came, and they rushed to the hospital to deliver their baby boy. Everything went great. Healthy baby boy, healthy mother. But here's what happened. In the hospital nursery, a nurse on staff made a terrible mistake. And she took their healthy baby and hooked him up to an IV with the wrong medication. It left the child with irrevocable brain damage. And the pastor who's telling the story heard this devastating news, and so he came to the hospital to visit her. And he said he walked into the room And she was sitting in the corner in a rocking chair. And she was holding her baby. And she was smiling. And she was singing over that child. The pastor said, I've come when I heard the news, but I confess I didn't know what to say when I would show up. And um, she she just said, oh, we're, we're doing just fine. And the pastor was stunned. He says, how is that possible? You say you're doing fine. And this is what she said. She said, I can picture someone, I can picture someone holding up my child and saying, who wants this baby? This baby will never be able to eat on his own. Will never be able to go to the bathroom by himself. Will never be able to leave the bed. He won't even be able at the end of the day ever to say thank you. And she said, I can picture myself jumping to my feet 
and screaming, I want that baby. So the pastor said, why? She said, because I can picture someone holding me up and saying, who wants this woman? She's going to gossip about you. She's going to lie to you. She's going to hate you. She's going to stab you in the back. She's going to disrespect you. She's going to steal from you. And she says, and I can picture Jesus jumping to his feet to say, I want that woman. Listen, worship has the power to transform your whole life, to give you peace in what you feel like is a disaster even. When you've found the only true beauty that could ever satisfy your heart, and when you realize he wants you, that he sent his son to be struck down just to have you, it'll transform you, and it'll engage your whole being, right? And finding out more and more of who he is and what he has done for you, it will just add fuel to your worship. And it will cause you to love the truly needy around you, but it will only do that It will only do that if you come to the rock that was struck for you, who is Jesus. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the psalmist who wrote all this down for us. And even as we sit here and listen to this sermon and hear about worship, It does lead us to confess that we are often not very good worshipers, and we need your help. We need your help to worship you rightly. We need your help in order that we could be received by you as righteous because of Jesus in our place and become the worshipers you made us to be. And so we pray that you would help us by your Spirit. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.